So I'll be doing the talking tonight. Hmm. Sometime after lunch, um, I was thinking to, wanted to tell Steve that um, I was only going to talk for 20 minutes and I wasn't going to bring any notes and I didn't know what my topic was. And so I was walking down the hill (laughs) to tell Steve this. Steve said, <laughs> so Vance was there also, and he said, well, I was just telling Vance that right about now, Alexis is going to come up to me and say, I'm only going to speak for 20 minutes. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to say, <laughs> and I'm not going to bring any notes. So just realizing the habits that we have, and I guess my habit is pretty transparent. <laughs> um, Steve has seen me do this a few times now. different ways of giving talks and, um, and the reason why I've been interested in this uh, this process is it just um, you know, there's a sort of vulnerability and rawness that uh, I really have loved in the, the Dhamma that um, I think is a in a way, it's a skill and it's a key part to our practice. You know, to actually living our own life is this possibility of being vulnerable and opening to our own life, our own life stories. You know, I think it's very easy as we navigate in our life, without, without a practice, our life becomes a, a groove that we've managed to kind of avoid difficulty, avoid difficult experiences, or avoid thinking about things, avoid maybe deep honesty, avoid letting in the hard emotions that can come in or recognizing the loneliness that we can feel, the rawness of experience. And the Dhamma is this deep invitation and it's really up to us how deep we make that, that invitation. But the invitation is to be real, to come home to what's happening. In the first couple of years of my practice, I hadn't yet really heard that, uh, hadn't sunk in really deeply. I was still kind of hovering above my own experience, looking down, kind of doing my technique in my practice. And a real shift happened when I finally got it, and that I was really being encouraged and allowed 
to just be there, be with what comes up, and what comes into the mind, what's in the heart, and to stay there long enough so we're not just bouncing out of some discomfort and moving on, but just to hang out for a while and see what's there. And that was when I first met Saito in Tejaniya, and I heard kind of maybe between the lines, just the way he was in his own natural condition. He wasn't trying to win anyone's approval, <clears throat> you know, or look good. He was just being himself and offering you know, teachings the way he understood them. And I remember I went to the hall in those first few weeks, and so often I just sat there and it just, I, I just covered in tears at times. Because it was the first time I was not trying to do something to experience, but actually was being encouraged and told to just listen and to open the heart and to soften to whatever's there. And that's not easy to do. Sometimes I think we've built up so many layers of resistance and strategies of avoiding uh, certain aspects in our mind and heart that it just takes time to let our awareness adjust again to a more subtle way of feeling into our own experience. One kind of difficult emotion that has been up for uh, kind of interest for me and uh, Steve and Vance, we've all been talking about the nature of shame, this quality, and uh, it's not that often talked about, and yet apparently it's gaining some more airtime what shame is and how difficult an emotion it is. And I was just listening to, to a psychologist, uh, I think a social scientist, talk about the nature of shame and one key ingredient to shame is the sense of I am bad or I am, you know, pick your own poison but the I amness, and in this particular language, um, she was pointing out that guilt, which is more, we might look at it a little bit differently in, in the Dhamma, but guilt in the sense of I have done something bad is more looking at an action. It's not our identity. It's recognizing, yeah, an action may have caused some, some pain or... Um, you know, there's a, a sense of that wasn't skillful. And I was just amazed that that's the power of the view in the mind. When we take the view, I am, as an identity. And the difference between not having that view of I am in relation to some difficult emotional state or some thought... And that that really is what unhooks or, or relieves that, that uh, connection between having a feeling state 
and identifying with that state. And I think that's, that is one of the things that gives us, in a way, our power in practice, is as we uh, take in the possibility of looking at our own life with the, the view that this is nature. I'm not separate from nature. That nature happens because the forces of, of conditioning are there, causes come together and things arise. And that is true for our own mind, our own heart. And yet it's just for some reason so seductive to take a view about oneself and we make it into a really entrenched opinion. I am. I am wrong. I am bad. In one of in the intergroup, one interview group, we were talking about this word right and right view and uh, right attitude, and just the kind of nature of thinking right is so easy to think wrong, and then when we think wrong, the next step is I am wrong. I'm no good. I'm not practicing the right way. I'm not getting anywhere. Other people are better than I am. I don't like myself. Whatever it is, you know, just that I am. And the invitation to reflect on the Dhamma is really a very skillful, very skillful. It's very, you know, this kind of cause and effect is real. When the mind orients to seeing things as natural conditions, as being caused, having a cause, the, the impersonal nature of that arises in the mind. And that in itself already has a sense of relief. And then again, when we think about it as being an identity about I and me, very clearly we can see how powerful the mind is conditioned to then form around that, which is just the clinging mind, the attaching mind to that emotion or to that thought, and the struggle that immediately arises. And I'm just amazed in just a simple shift in reminding myself, this is just anger, or it's just an unpleasant emotional state, or it's just, it's just the judgment that my mind is accustomed to having. And that languaging already relieves some sense of uh, burden. That I can now become aware of this as a phenomenon, aware of its nature, its qualities, I can get interested. And then as soon as I'm back into the self story, immediately there's that, the dukkha arises, that sense of how unpleasant it is to be caught in the, the story about this difficult state, the story of the inner judgment, the inner critic.
Yeah, so it takes courage to listen long enough to be vulnerable to our own experience really long enough to sense what is important to pay attention to what's of value in our practice or in a moment of experience we begin to see what really connects us each as human beings in this process of living, in the rawness of life, the, the fears, the confusion that comes up, that it's not just my confusion, my fear, my sense of being isolated or alone. And it's very deep work when we start to see these these qualities as being conditioned. Because then we can look out and actually already understand that this is universal. We're all in this samsara, in this kind of becoming of causes and conditions, being conditioned by our culture, by our family stories, by our own mind habits, our own thought patterns. serious. I feel like I've made that one's mood drop way down. there is a lightness that does come from realizing that we don't have to take everything so seriously or so personally. Steve was sharing with me, uh, which I am borrowing, um, which I hope is okay. He was telling me that a yogi... Teachers, when they get stories, apparently they like to really use them. And so there's a bit of ownership around particularly good <laughs> phrases. <laughs> so it was, he had been talking, you know, on a retreat, I think recently, about causes and conditions and that phrase, causes and conditions. And a yogi reported how free she felt in hearing this phrase, causes and conditions, because she realized, and I think I shared this in one of the interview groups, uh, that she didn't have to be the master of the universe anymore. <laughs> that because things were already happening, things were unfolding, that her tendency to need to control everything and make everything, or try to make everything turn out the way that her mind would like things to turn out, and she could let that down. 
let that weight of doing it right, doing our life right, our relationships right, our family right, our work right, our spiritual experiences, getting that right. And one of the things we're really trying to get across is trusting more the natural unfolding of practice. That is, the personal effort that we put in only goes so far. We can put in the personal effort to attune the mind towards the Dhamma, to reflect in the right way. And that there's a certain aspect to, to trusting the Dhamma. And a lot of it is patiently hanging out, letting things reveal themselves when the time's ready, and softening the heart to see what we're protecting, what else might want to bubble up. There's a lot less personal effort required than what looks like initially. So what is it like not to be the master of your personal universe, the master of your practice? Relaxing into or trusting a moment. This moment is okay. (coughs) Meeting discomfort meeting vulnerability, meeting a little bit of trembling or shaking in front of a group of people. You know, just the way things are. It's a lot easier when it's not so personal. Just awareness, recognizing what's happening. Sometimes I'm <laughs> amazed. It's, in the Dhamma, it's like we say a lot of things and a lot of it really is just can be condensed down to one. I don't know if there's one, one phrase, one nectar of a line. If I find it, I'll tell you what it is. But I just feel like <laughs> <laughs> so much of the Dhamma, we just keep repeating the same thing. You know? and, uh, I mean, the Dhamma, they say, is vast. And, and yet, you know, the Buddha oftentimes said, I just teach... Two things, you know, you could say it's one thing or two things, but it's suffering and the end of suffering. In a way, everything else was an elaboration of that, you know, how to have right livelihood and how to live in family and society in a non-harming and harmonious way, how to take care of family and responsibilities that are our own domain, how to meet that and how to really understand on a very deep level the nature of the mind and the possibility of freeing ourselves from all the distortions of perception, the ways we misunderstand our own nature and the nature around us. Hmm. 
24 minutes. Life can be so simple. Just seconds ticking by. I think um, there's really you know, being more and more in the teaching role, the teaching seat. Um, you see the similarity between that and, and my own practice, being a yogi, being a practitioner. And there's, you know, there's a certain skill in how much we need to do, how much we need to say to ourselves you know, in our own practice. I was uh, reflecting how with Utejaniya and his retreats, he doesn't even give Dhamma talks. Just offers a reflection in the morning and then a group interview every other day or every third day for the yogi. That's it. That's all he offers. And it's like, you know, so he's just pushing the swing, just the tapping of the yogi's mind or whatever is needed just enough that information. And you know, I think the analogy with our own practice is similar, that we can so often be doing our practice in a way that uh, we're not trusting the momentum of, that we're building, just trusting that and checking just enough to see for ourselves. You know, maybe every few moments, or maybe every few minutes, but increasingly there's this sense of these wholesome factors of mind, you know, of, understanding the way things are, just start to show up. So how much do we need to do becomes part of our own wisdom and practice. You know, how much can we just start to trust a little bit more the unfolding, the ease of unfolding. If we just continue moment by moment to recognize something that's happening, some quality in the mind of what's there, that that's, can be enough. And we think of one of the descriptions for a liberated mind is a mind that is without greed, without hatred, and without delusion. And so it's not a small thing to be watching each moment that some aversion is rising, some clinging, some attachment, or seeing the nature of the mind that's involved and identified with an experience as delusion. Each moment that we recognize that is another movement towards a mind that is freer. And when the mind is completely free, when there's no greed, No aversion and no confusion in the mind. The mind naturally takes reality for what it is and suffering comes to an end. I'll tell you what that's like when I get there. <laughs> but we get, we get tastes. We get tastes all the time.
Why don't we just take a few minutes, maybe five minutes, to be together without some of my words, just to close out the reflection.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.